Good evening and uh, welcome to our service this evening. Just before we start, um, uh, you will have uh, received, I think in the, in the program that you have, a little card that, uh, uh, in which you're invited to um, put your name and uh, location, how you knew Robert, uh, just for a record for the family. So just for a minute, perhaps now, if you've not had a chance to fill it in, perhaps you'd like just for the next uh, minute or so, just to fill in a card and then we'll, we'll start our service properly. You might need to borrow a pen off somebody. Some pens at the back. Oh, there are some pens even at the back if anybody wants to uh, go search there instead of asking your neighbour for one. By all means, carry on uh, uh, filling in your card while, we're, while we uh, progress, but we will start the service now. Uh, welcome to everybody to this uh, special evening, which is a celebration of and thanksgiving for the life of Robert Pattinson. Designer, woodworker, metal worker, builder, engineer, motor mechanic, marketry artist, and believe it or not, percussionist. He played the drums. Um, the program for the service was planned by Robert himself, and it's being held in an evening in accordance with his wishes. My guess is that uh, he reasoned that people should not need to take time off work in order to attend. Um, a typically practical, down-to-earth consideration that doesn't surprise anyone who knew Robert. This, uh, this fine lectern that uh, we're using this evening uh, was designed and made by Robert for friends who were involved in planting a new church in Middleton. And the building in which we're gathered this evening over the years has benefited from Robert's skills in many ways, including extensive roof repairs and doubling the size of the car park. This morning, uh, Jeff mentioned the many occasions when Robert would help him out with problems with his car. And I can remember a time when without Robert's help and support, I honestly don't think I would have been able to afford to run a car. Uh, when you went to Robert with a problem, his first response was often quite discouraging. <laughs> he, uh, he usually, he, he rubbed his chin and after he'd had a good look at what the problem was, and with a furrowed brow, he diagnosed the problem, informing me that some vital component was quite beyond repair and would need replacing. Seeing his gloomy demeanor, my heart would sink until he told me that I would probably have to pay as much as five pounds for a second-hand part 
in the scrapyard, which we then proceeded to visit. Robert was undoubtedly a modern-day Bezalel, a gifted artisan with many practical and artistic skills. But this evening, my wife and I remember him primarily as a valued friend and godly Christian teacher who made an impact on our lives during our teenage years. Though Robert never saw himself as an orator, we remember him characteristically leaning like this on a table or lectern while speaking to 50 or 60 young people as if he were in conversation with each of us individually, giving advice about how to live the Christian life. I was recently chatting to Gerard Crispin, a friend who's sorry that he's not able to be with us this evening, and he told me that when he was, and I quote, a backslidden, very superficial, worldly Christian, he attended a meeting where Robert was explaining why we need to share the message of the cross and what that message is. Gerard commented, on my way back to the Lord a little later, that teaching was very much in my mind and has been the center of the gospel I've preached ever since. We meet to celebrate Robert's life and to support Betty and the family he has left behind as they grieve his loss, though in the words of St. Paul, not as those who have no hope. Trevor Jack will now come and lead us in prayer. Then Robert's grandson, James, will read a poem by Betty before Trevor returns to give his personal tribute. Can I uh, again welcome everybody and uh, shall we pray together? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you this evening for the immense privilege of being able to come to you. We thank you for your great love and your great mercy. We praise you that that love and that mercy was found in all its fullness in the Lord Jesus, in him who stepped into time, in him who lived amongst men, and in him who in the fullness of time went to that cross and bled and died for each one of us. Father, we praise you for the salvation that he purchased. And we thank you this evening, Lord, for the privilege of being able to remember our brother Robert Pattinson. We thank you for his love and his zeal and his faith in the Lord Jesus. And we praise you, Lord, for the gifts that you gave to him and the work and the way that in which he used them. And we praise you, Lord, this evening that he is with his Saviour, worshipping the Lord Jesus. Father, we remember Betty, his wife. We thank you, Lord, for their marriage together for 64 years. We thank you for their love for each other and their love for the Saviour. And Father, we commit Betty to you and we pray that you would be her comfort, you would be her joy, and you would be her delight. 
And Lord, we remember the family, we remember Mark, Graham and Heather, Emma and James, and we bring them to you. Father, we pray that you would richly bless them. And Lord, we commit this service to you and all those that take part. Father, we pray that your hand of rich blessing would be upon this evening. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A Room Without a View by Betty Pattinson. Tossing and turning through the night, jumbled thoughts occurred in a fight. Longingly to perchance to dream, a notion emerged about a new scheme. Robert's vision was a downstairs loo. Extend the old porch and then we have two. Jack is a man with expert knowledge, educated in an architectural college. With a line here and there, he soon had a plan, successfully approved by the councilman. The go-ahead given must now begin the rip-roaring racket tumultuous din. Douglas and Robert were a good team, worked all light hours to the extreme, dismantling the old porch speedily, the trailer always full to capacity. Bell Al Eric loved the clamour, dancing with the noisy jackhammer, ripping the concrete out of the ground with jarring, vibrating and discordant sound. Time drew near to select the bricks. To Normanton Bricksworks, out in the sticks, the chill wind blew among the stacks, struck a good bargain with reject packs. Morley Douglas could efficiently make ingredients for a solid cake, measured mixings of sand or cement, Compo now ready for bricks to indent. Gildas Emerick was quite adept, especially at glazing. So to action he leapt like a whirlwind, beading soon in place, completed the job at the optimum pace. Horsforth Andrew had the irks employ to scrub the bricks, which was no joy. Together with hose and brush in hand, he accomplished the job which looks just grand. Dundee Ian, the loo leak fixer, kindly loaned his concrete mixer. With alacrity, tenacity, and his skill, he punched a great hole with his pneumatic drill. Robert's aspirations were now fulfilled, thanks to the friends who contributed to build the elaborate porch with the royal flush, a room with no view, tastefully plush. You all worked so hard with such precision and gave of your time without reservation. The privilege is ours for friends like you, gratefully, we owe so much to so few. Well, I first met Robert probably 47 years ago, and I'd uh, not long been converted, and I started to attend here at City. And uh, he was, him and uh, Betty were really, really friendly. And they were delighted because I came from Meanwood, the Meanwood area, and they loved Meanwood. And also, one of, the, one of the ladies that helped bring me to the Lord was a good friend of Betty, a lady called Hazel Tong. And uh, so, over the, the weeks and months and years, we chat after a, an, a morning and an evening service, talking about all sorts of things, talking about the sermons, but talking about projects that Rod, uh, Rob, Robert was on the go with. 
And then things changed slightly because my wife's brother, Graham, married Robert's Robert and Betty's daughter, Heather. And so I became a part of the extended family. And we would meet at Christmases and birthdays, and they, they would always get there before, before Sylvia and I did. And they'd be sat on the sofas, and they'd be beaming, and we'd talk about all sorts of different things. And uh, we had a great time. But the first time I, I remember his generosity, or their generosity, was, like Bill mentioned, when I had car trouble. And uh, it was my first car, it was a Vauxhall Viva. And I decided as Christmas or winter approached that I would change the coolant system because I was afraid there wasn't enough antifreezing. Well, of course, I took the bottom hose off the radiator, the coolant drained out, put the hose back on, filled it up, and that was it. Until I went onto the motorway sometime later and the pressure blew the bottom hose off the radiator. The fluid escaped, and I had a seized car, seized engine, and had to be towed off the motorway. Well, Robert, like a shining knight, he came to me and said, look, we'll arrange for a reconditioned engine. And sure enough, he arranged it. He had his famous trailer. We picked it up, and somehow, and I can't remember how now, we got my car that wasn't working back to his garage. And... Uh, and we started working on it. Well, his garage was nothing like a garage that you might meet nowadays. There was no viewing areas. There was no drinks dispensers. Um, it was a, a cup of tea when it was tea, uh, drinks time in a nice warm living room. And we, again, we chat about all sorts of things. But uh, I say that we worked on the car. Actually, Robert did all the work. I just passed him the tools. And, uh, and eventually, after a couple of days, the old engine was out, the new engine was in, and uh, it came to the moment where he started it up, and it didn't work. And, uh, and Robert had some choice sayings. One of them was, uh, would you Adam and Eve it? And the other one was, if anything can go wrong, it will. <laughs> and... Uh, well, I suddenly realised that on my Vauxhall Viva, the choke, the, the uh, manual choke, and for those who don't know what a choke is, basically, <laughs> basically it was a, a device that um, it, it uh, increased the, the flow of the petrol and the air together, and, of course, the engine started more easily. Well, mine, when you pulled the knob out and turned it, it was supposed to stay out, but it never did. And he didn't know this, and I suddenly began to think, hmm, I wonder if I ought to tell him, really. And because by this point, he was getting quite agitated anyhow. <laughs> I did tell him, and he looked at me, but within two minutes, the engine was purring like a kitten. And, uh, and then on another occasion, actually, again, with, with another car I had, uh, it needed an MOT, and he said to me, Trevor, bring it up to my place. We'll take it to Wingate, Wingate uh, Garage, and we'll get it sorted. Well, we took it up, and it was all fine until they examined the underneath of the car, and both sills, the inner sills, were completely corroded. Well, Robert said to me, and he wasn't very happy, but he, he took me somewhere, I can't remember where, and we got some new sills. And for the next two days, he was welding and uh, filling, and he painted it with his black 
paint gun stuff, which the examiner wasn't too pleased about. But anyhow, it, it, <laughs> it, got, it got an MOT certificate, and I was delighted. <laughs> and, uh, and on both occasions, he'd done loads of work, and I paid him really a small amount of money. But as I was about to leave, delighted that I'd got an MOT certificate, he came up to me and he said, Trevor, get rid, sell it. And my heart sank. <laughs> well, well, by this point, he'd obviously learned that I was working shifts. And so during some weeks, I had some free days and he'd come up to me on Sunday morning, Trevor, have you got any time this week? I've got this job and I've got nobody else to help me. Can you come and give us a hand? Well, of course, I was delighted, I loved it. And, uh, and then later on, well, a number of years later, I had the opportunity of taking early retirement. I'd worked in uh, residential care, I'd done uh, weekends, uh, shifts, lates and earlies, sleepings and all the business. And so I took the opportunity. Well, of course, Robert, he, he was straight on the ball. He said, Trevor, you know this time you've got on your hands. We, in, in the building team, we're really short of fresh blood. Have, would you like to come and join? Well, of course, inwardly I was delighted, you know, but anyhow, so, so that was what happened. And of course, I was one of many, and there were people, you know, like uh, Eric Hobson and Douglas Sykes, uh, uh, Roger Oldfield, John Keane, Colin Bainbridge, uh, Owen Berg, and there were many others who were, had been part of the team. So it was a real privilege. And uh, we had some great times together. But you know, the only reason he could do that is because he had a wife who really supported him. In fact, I think she pushed him out the door, but anyhow. <laughs> but but uh, the other thing that he had, which was a, a real blessing to him, he had a great friend. Now, Fred Flintstone had Barney Rubble and uh, Oliver had Hardy, uh, 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 yeah, and uh, Wise, Morecambe had Wise, and of course the Lone Ranger had Tonto, well Robert had Eric Older. Now Robert of course was a, was a master craftsman as we've learned, but actually there was one more subject that he was a master craftsman in, and that was upholstery, we'll come on to that later. And, uh, and Eric was a master sparky, he was the electrician, so when Robert built Anything that needed power, Eric was the man. And, uh, and I'd come, come down, we'd meet at half past nine. Eric was already here. He was in some other part of the building. He was uh, fixing fuse boxes, or he was putting new lights in, or he was looking at the, uh, at the fire... Um, okay, it's gone from my mind, but he was looking at it anyhow. And, uh, <laughs> and me and Robert would be in another part of the building. And uh, we, th there were so many jobs that we did, really good jobs, but I was never involved in the big construction jobs that, that went on at the church. So when he was talking one day to a police officer about a breaking at the church and the part of the roof blew off, I wasn't there, but he was and he loved it. And, uh, and then when they took the organ out from the front, I wasn't there at that time either, or when they removed all the pews. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't there, and I would have loved to have been. But we did loads of jobs, loads of jobs. But one of the one of the unusual ones, and one that that Robert and I didn't really fix actually, we'd had a new roof put on the building, 
And in the vestry there, when, when there was torrential rain, there was always a leak. And, and this went on for a long time. And I'd been up on the roof, uh, as Robert told me to do, but I couldn't see what was wrong. And this, this weekend had been loads of rain and there were buckets in there and the water was running down the wall. And he said to me, right, Trevor, go up into workshop. He said, get the, uh, the, the reciprocal saw. I want you to cut a square hole in the ceiling about a foot wide. Well, I got the stepladders, I got the saw. I cut this hole in the ceiling thinking, this is extreme. But anyhow, he said, go up there with your phone, turn the torch on and see if you can see where the water's coming in. Well, I climbed the stepladders and I looked up and there was a structure that just looked like a brain. And I thought, oh. And then it suddenly dawned on me. It was a wasp's nest. And it was like a football. And in fact, I've got a picture if anybody wants to, to look at it. <laughs> and I came down the steps pretty quickly. I said to Robert, look, we've got a problem. He said, why, what's up now? I said, well, there's a wasp's nest up there. He said, well, go back up and see if there's any there. <laughs> so... Fortunately for me, it was empty. They'd all vacated the premises. So I, I kind of brought it down. And then for the next 20 minutes, we didn't do any work. We were just looking at this structure. Uh, it, you know, it was amazing. But the great thing about working with, in the building team is at 10.30, it was tea time. Or in Robert's case, it was coffee, one sweetener. And uh, we talk about you know, anything under the sun. And at that time, it was all about uh, Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Hammond and the Scottish referendum. And then it went on to, it went on to uh, Brexit. Well, of course, that was so divisive. So then when we started talking about Donald Trump, who was president, that was, <laughs> that was really quite... That relieved the tension. And then, of course, it was, it was masks and PPE, jabs and and COVID. Well, th there were occasions where he would, he would, they would both tell us uh, really interesting stories. So for instance, how they first met. How, how did they first meet? Because it was going back 50, 60 years ago. And uh, Eric said, well, at that time, Robert was building mobility furniture. And uh, some, of his, some of his clients were Professor Wright's ex-patients. And the problem with the furniture he was making, it was all done by hydraulics. And he said, I really needed a, an electrician to build a circuit to make this much more reliable. And of course, Eric was the man. And uh, Robert, I believe, Heather went with him up and down the country getting orders, that kind of thing. And, uh, and I said to Robert, I said, well, how could, how could you make furniture? He said, well, I went to night school and then upholstery. And he said it as if, you know, it was just something you did. I went to night school and learned upholstery. And then the one, the really intriguing one, and it just reminded me of Fools and Orsig, but he said, he said, we, uh, uh, he said, we, we made an electric car. I said, you know what? He said, we made an electric car. He said, uh, Robert said, we went to a scrapyard and we found an electric motor off a milk float, an old milk float. He said, and I had a Robin Reliant. He said, and, and Eric, he got the batteries. And he said, we put it together. And we had this electric car. I said, wow. He said, yeah. He said, Eric said, we got permission 
to, to drive it on some private roads at the back of the old Kirkstall power station. He said, that, but the only problem was the speedo either wasn't connected or it didn't work, so one of them had to drive their own car to see what speed it was doing. <laughs> well, all was going really well when, of course, one of the batteries exploded. And, of course, Eric would then tell us all the technical details why you can't really use lead-acid batteries for an electric car. You needed traction batteries, but, of course, Robert couldn't afford them. So that was the end, as it were, of, of the electric car. But, you know, Robert was really, really generous. And he, because I had worked on a bandsaw when I was in tailoring, he put me on the, the table saw and the circular saw. And sometimes when the straight cuts were a bit more round than straight, he was just really, really helpful. And uh, one day I came in, I said, oh, look, I've just bought a router for a birthday present. He said, oh, bring it in, bring it in. We're doing these, um, we're doing these, um, these hinges for the, st uh, the bin store out there. You can use a router for that. So he was so keen to show me. And uh, we had lovely times. And then, I don't know whether you know, but Eric and Robert, they were the same age, and their birthdays were 13 days apart. So Robert's was the end of February, and Eric's is the beginning of March. So when they were 86 or 87, I'm not sure when it was, I, I said to them, look, we need to celebrate your birthdays. They said, oh, we can't leave our wives at home. I said, well, we'll go after work, you know, during the day. Okay, but where will we go? Well, I said, there's a McDonald's down the road. <laughs> well, Robert pipes up, I've never been to McDonald's and I've never had a burger. So, of course, the Friday comes and there's four of us in my car, drive down to McDonald's, all in our work gear and looking like proper professional builders. And we goes in and it's four Big Macs, three lattes and a Coke. And we munched away for about 40 minutes. And as we were going back to the car to come back to church to, to park, I said to Robert, what do you think to McDonald's then? He said to me, I like it, our kid, I like it. <laughs> yeah. Well, there were lot, lots and lots of stories, but of course, Robert was far more than just the gifts that the Lord had given him. He loved the Lord and he loved God's people and he, loves, he loved the preaching of the word. And uh, we would often talk about sermons that he'd heard and unfortunately as he got older in his later life his ears didn't work that well and often his hearing aid batteries didn't work that well either and uh, and he'd say to me i just didn't hear it or if he did hear it the speaker spoke too quick or he was too quiet um but yeah it, it, the the privilege of my life just to work and to help robert because obviously as he got older he couldn't do the things that he'd always taken for granted. So I was there as his minder to make sure he didn't do anything that he shouldn't. Well, I was talking to Colin a couple of weeks ago, Colin Bainbridge, and he said to me, I wonder if Rich Owen, uh, who was our first kind of assistant pastor, I wonder if he knows that Robert has passed. Well, Colin uh, emailed him and he sent me a little tribute and he asked me if I would read it. And it's not very long, but it's lovely. So I'm just going to read it to you. And it says this. It's, this is Rich Owen's words. He said, I'm sure Robert's remarkable skills and engineering accomplishments will be well highlighted today. I hope someone has mentioned the steam bent 
beams crafted from old pews, but I believe his lovely, Christ, his lovely Christ-like character should be celebrated just as much. Like his Lord Robert loved the church and his commitment never waned through many years of membership amidst changing times. His faithful character was also exemplified by his long friendship with Eric Holder and his sweet marriage to Betty. In these things, he was like the bridegroom of heaven, life-giving, joyful, and tender. Robert was always very, sorry, Robert had a very hospitable personality, always giving time and attention to those he met. His personal warmth was totally disarming, as was his delightful smile and childlike enthusiasm. He had years of experience as a church leader and was willing to share that wisdom, seeking to pass on what he'd received from the Lord, though never holding too tightly to his contributions. Both my grandfathers died when I was young, so the example of men like Robert Pattinson meant so much to me, and I pray that if the Lord wills, all that I have learned from Robert will make me the best granddad I can be. And he just finishes off by saying, to God be the glory, great things he has done. And then he says, P.S., Robert, I do hope you're hanging about with the chap you've just mentioned. B, B, I can never pronounce the name, actually. Uh, uh, Bielze and Oliver. The oh, two. That's it, yeah. Bezalel, yeah. And the other guy, and I can't remember. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, they, basically, they were two craftsmen that the Lord gave to Moses yeah. to help in building the tabernacle. Yeah. And, uh, and what a lovely thought that Robert, not only has he met his Lord, but he can chat with these two craftsmen. They can talk about tools and they can talk about all sorts of things. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, the great uh, advantage of taking your car to Robert was that uh, you not only got the car repaired, uh, we really by Robert, but you did also receive an education so that you felt that perhaps next time, well, Perhaps you wouldn't attempt it yourself next time, but you knew a little bit more about how the job was done because you watched every stage and he, he, he taught you. He taught me a lot about uh, cars uh, just by watching him and, uh, and helping him uh, as he sought to repair mine. He was a motivator. As Trevor mentioned, I, I, I was never on the, the building team, but when he was doing the, the car park outside here, um, he was, I think he must have been a bit short of labour, so he, w he would uh, motivate several people in the church, and he even managed to get me down there for one afternoon. And realising that it was a unique occasion to see me uh, down there wielding a shovel, he even took a photograph of it. So the family will probably find somewhere in the family photographs a, a photograph of me leaning on a shovel down in the car park, uh, because that was basically all I managed to, uh, to do. But it was, that was great. Well, Robert um, chose the wonderful hymn by Charles Wesley that uh, we'll, we'll now sing. Verse 4, I think, is particularly permanent, pertinent as it, it summarizes that talk that Robert gave about the cross in 1960 that made such an impact on Gerard. See all your sins on Jesus laid. The Lamb of God was slain. His soul was once an offering made for every soul of man. And after this hymn, Robert's daughter Heather 
will bring her tribute. Let's sing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise.
few weeks ago, my dad asked me if I was going to say something at his funeral service. My immediate response was, of course, you're my dad. But when I've actually got here, I'm really nervous, so you'll have to excuse me. My dad had two sides to him, and those knew him well will have experienced both of them. He could be grumpy, impatient, irritable, stubborn, adamant, dogmatic, strict, and particularly I knew that as a rebellious teenager, negative at times. He always looked at the most difficult solution to a problem first, at first, much to the visible horror and dismay of those he was helping, until he quickly found a solution, at which point he would cheerfully whistle with delight. He was quirky, and he was definitely quite eccentric. He would never buy anything new if it could be fixed or adapted. I had one gadget that Dad did not have, a craft hot glue gun. Dad would often have in mind something to fix with it. When his braces had lost their elasticity, he called me one day to take my trusty glue gun on my next visit. He had an idea how to fix them from falling off his shoulders. Glue a piece of cloth across them so they were like lederhosen and braces. <laughs> he realised after wearing them like this, they were not that easy to take off. <laughs> so I had another phone call to take my glue gun again. With Velcro in hand, he explained that, that if the attached piece of cloth had Velcro, he could detach it and he would be able to remove his braces more easily. <laughs> he was also a man of much compassion and care and felt deeply when people were going through difficult times in their lives, old and young alike. He spent much of his time supporting others. He would be there to offer friendship, company, a shoulder to lean on, financial support, advice and spiritual support albeit privately and with great humility, without seeking any recognition. Only those who were the recipients of this help will know who they are, and there are many. He would take the time to visit those who were sick, wherever they were, on a regular basis, to try and give them some comfort during this time. He seemed to be able to identify individuals who needed some sort of help and did what he could to support them. Many years ago, he worked with a teaching colleague who was going through an extremely difficult time. Dad offered him friendship and help during this time. They remained friends for many years. This friend never forgot Dad's kindness to him. And after his death, a couple of checks came through the post for both mum and dad. He had left them a thank you in his will. Dad wanted to buy something special with the money and promptly went out and purchased his much-loved little red flying machine, his Toyota Yaris. I have to say I have been driving it round in the last few weeks and for a small car with a 1.5 litre engine and six gears, it's a flyer. <laughs> the aspect of Dad, which was probably the most well-known, was that he was very generous with his time and practical expertise in repairing, adapting and making things. He absolutely loved to be knee deep in sawdust or wading through cement or oil, 
much to Mum's dismay when he walked it through the house. He was never happier than when he was doing something practical. He was also a hoarder of all things that may come in handy one day, including nuts, bolts, bits of metal and wood, and if you saw inside his garage, many other things as well. He was a very skilled craftsman and repairer of all things, but, as has previously mentioned, probably the only thing that Dad would not work on was anything electrical. But he knew a man that could, his dear friend Eric. The amazing work my dad has done at the church with his trusty team of labourers will stay and be a memory to his skill and expertise. I look round his house, mine and Emma's, and see all the things he has made over the years. When Rita died, she left a collection of a hundred or so thimbles to Emma. Emma wanted to display them, and Dad set to making a beautiful glass cabinet to go on her wall with a hundred, hundred tiny, precisely measured space dowels to hold them upright to show them off. She also asked him to make a shoe rack, which he did, and finished it off with some of the pitch pine, which he loved from the old church pews. I was always asking him to make things for me, which he did, using the materials he'd collected over the years. It was quite handy because I would see things in shops or magazines that were expensive. So I would take a picture to Dad and ask him to make it for me. He would then rubbish round his garage and find the perfect piece of wood and proceed to make the items I'd asked for. Spice racks, guitar stands, wooden bowls which he had beautifully turned on his lathe, picture frames, cheese board and many other things. I would like to thank those friends who visited Dad regularly in the hospital. These visits met, meant a lot to him and helped him to deal with the long hours on his own. I would also again like to thank Eric for always being at the end of the phone for Dad. When we had to leave Dad after visiting, he was often upset and we suggested to help him ring someone for him to talk to to try and make it easier for him when we left. More often than not, he wanted to speak to his dear friend, Eric. My dad was a very loving and devoted father. He had a very special way of showing that throughout my life. Wherever he was, he would look at me, catch my eye, give me a big smile, and then the cheekiest loving wink. I can honestly say that Mark and I have been truly blessed that our dad chose us to be his son and daughter. And I am so proud that I could call him my dad. Thanks very much, Heather. Well, we've heard a lot about uh, Robert's friendship with Eric, and uh, um, Eric is now going to, Eric Holder is now going to come and give us the Bible readings before Stephen brings our address for this evening. The reading from uh, Psalm 23. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 13 to the end. <clears throat> but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore encourage one another with these words. Well, now it's some time ago that Robert asked me if I'd be willing to uh, preach at his service and this Thanksgiving service. And of course, that's a high privilege and it's good to be able to do that. It's good to see so many people that have recent and long-standing association with this building. Uh, I wasn't going to mention it, but I will mention it because it kind of, it's a bit risky is this, but when I was in Warsaw for the first time, I went into this big church, a basilica. A friend took me and he wanted to show me around. And there's, there was pillars like this around, propping up the, the gallery, but there were great big pillars. And I'm walking along and uh, come across one pillar and I see Chopin, his name and some details about him in Polish, which of course I can't read. Um, so I discovered that his heart was in the pillar. Oh, that's a horrible thing anyway, but, it, but his heart is in the pillar. And uh, I thought, well, we would never dream of such things as that. We wouldn't want to. But in this building, Robert's heart, his, his heart, you know, not his physical heart, his heart was in this building for the service of the Lord. And so just listening to different things, looking around the building, seeing it almost 50 years since City Church moved into this building, uh, it reminded me of his passion and his love and his hard work. Now, one of the passages of the two that he selected for this occasion is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. So I felt it was right to speak from that passage, and that that's what we'll do. And it's, it's one of the early letters in the New Testament, very well his, attested historically. It's a very important Christian document, uh, and it forms part of the New Testament. 
And Graham made the point to me, we were chatting just in the, in the week, in the run-up to this service, that the service itself highlights two remarkable things about Robert. The man in his working clothes amongst the dirt and the oil and the grit and the elevated music and the majestic words and the soaring ideas. And it really captures two or two more facets of Robert. We've heard an awful lot of them. And I worked with him. In 1978, I spent one year working for the church here, uh, which I thought was going to be about preaching and, uh, and uh, visiting. And I spent a lot of time working with Robert on this building. Uh, but that did me good. That was very good. And like everyone else has said, you learned a lot. But he'd be banging away whilst humming or whistling some favorite classical piece. It's not usual, you know. He wasn't sort of singing some very popular tune. It was some complex classical piece that he would be whistling. Uh, he was a very good whistler, I may say. Um, but we know that out of the dirt and out of the mess, he would produce something good and useful. He was an artist. He was a craftsman. There's no doubt about that. Now, I was going to share something about his pessimism and optimism uh, and how he could knock you down, but Bill's already captured that. So here's another, here's another Robert story. Some years ago, uh, I, w I had a car. Now, if you know your cars, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we all, I've had lots of cars, but I had this particular car. I can see it. It was cream-colored, uh, not a very nice color, but it was a Citroen Super Ami. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's probably best that you haven't. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, it, had, it had some problems, and so I took it to Robert, the usual diagnosis. But he did surprise me because he said to me quite firmly, whatever possessed you to get that car? <laughs> that was his very words, I'm telling you. I can still recall it very, very vividly. I said, well, actually, Robert, it was a gift. Oh, well, that's okay then. So he, so he let me off. Um, but I have to say, he quit on it. He said, no, I can't do anything with this car. And uh, that was the end of it. So the Citroen Super Ami was one of his great failures. We haven't heard many of those tonight, I'll tell you. But he was generous spirited. He was gospel hearted. We had a mutual friend years ago that was ill. And Robert couldn't go and see him. You had to fly. And he, he bought me a ticket and said, you go see him. And he put me on a plane to go see him. And uh, just coming to our passage, that's where I want us to focus uh, on. It, he didn't select this passage without thought. He must have pondered it. He must have thought about the content of it, I'm, without, a, without a doubt. And I suspect often so. So we must focus on it. And it's a letter to a young church facing opposition. I have a friend now who's planting a church in Thessalonica in northern Greece. It's a city of over a million people now. And he's working in a sector that's hard and tough of about 40,000 people. And this early church was planted there. You can read about it in Acts chapter 17. And uh, it was a church that was facing some problems. Surprise, surprise. And it was a church that uh, had things to learn. They'd got some false ideas and they'd got some wrong understanding, particularly about people who had died. This is, where, this is the background to this passage. And yet 
For Paul, it was a model church. If you, chapter one, verse seven, he says that. It, you became a model. You became an example to all the churches around the region. But he went on and he explained uh, these things. So let's try and understand a little bit, but also in the sense, the context we're in just now. It's Robert's passage. He'd, he'd, he'd meditated on it. And I want to say three things. The first is this. For Christians, grief is different. For Christians, grief is different. Now, I'm not saying grief is absent because that would be both foolish and false and completely unnecessary. So don't get the wrong impression about what Paul is saying here. Far from it. And another aspect of this is that information on the matter of death is of vital importance. It was to these people and it is to you and me. And I've listened for, well, over the years, I've, and even in recent days, I've listened to very painful expressions of hopelessness in the face of death. In fact, very recently, a good friend of mine said of a loved one, I don't know where they are. So it's a very important subject. But notice what Paul says at the end of this reading. When he's finished his section, and we'll, we'll explore it a little bit more, he says this, therefore, encourage one another. That could be translated comfort. The two, the, the two ideas are closely related in the original. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, all that he's just been saying to them, and which we'll briefly try and summarize. And in some ways regarding grief, I think Christians are able to see it a little bit deeper. They see the reality of hopelessness. Perhaps they remember their own hopelessness before they came to trust in Jesus. And that adds something to it. Sympathy and empathy and compassion uh, for those in a state of hopelessness are surely the marks of a true Christian. And this is not... Uh, the everyday, oh, I hope so, but assured, confident expectation. Paul says to these people, you will not miss out when Jesus comes back, and neither will they. That's the backdrop. There was concern about what would happen to those who had died before the Lord Jesus returned. And if you know anything about 1 Thessalonians, every chapter ends with a reference to the second coming of Jesus. It's a very important aspect. And when you go into 2 Thessalonians, again, there's great discussion about that central event of history, climactic event. And that's his primary pastoral concern. He wants to help these people. And of course, there can be hopelessness, there can be false hope, there can be empty hope, but not for those whose confidence is in Jesus. I came across a little expression in Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah the other day. I was reading it, I'm reading it through at the moment. And he used the expression about the weight of years. And that really struck a chord with me because as you get older, you, there's a weight to the years, isn't there? For all, emotionally, physically. And coming to Robert, an agitating illness 
could cloud the hope, but not destroy it. We have a tremendous hope in Jesus. And for Christians, grief is different because there is such hope. It's not like the general picture of hopelessness. And that's a wonderful thing. It really, truly is a wonderful thing. But again, secondly, for Christians, death is different. Death is different. Outwardly, physically, physiologically, it's just the same. We know that. Because we're all part of this fallen world. Uh, And the Bible does make it clear that the wages of sin is death. And so we decline and we die. But inwardly, spiritually, it's not the same. And Paul wanted these people to know that those who had died were certainly not lost or in danger of missing anything in the triumphal and jubilant return of Jesus to earth. You've got to remember, that's a central issue in the New Testament. Over 300 references. And the whole of history, it's not circular, it's linear, and it's moving towards a climax. And Paul captures that, some, of, some of that here. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. That's his very clear words. And incidentally, verse 15, he says, according to the Lord's word, Paul says. And he goes on to say, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, let me just pick up on that phrase, asleep. It wasn't unusual, even in the ancient world at the time this was written, to use the imagery of sleep for death. That wasn't unusual. What Jesus brought to that was a new dimension, and a sobering and yet hopeful reality. And I was thinking about the little girl when he went to see the little girl who had died and Jesus put everybody out of the room. And he said, she's not dead. He he knew she was dead. He said, she's not dead, she's asleep, she's asleep. And they laughed at him. And here's the thing, Jesus could banish death with a word. Staggering. So notice again what Paul writes, therefore encourage one another with these words. So for Christians, grief is different. For Christians, death is different. And then thirdly, it is the Christ of Christians that makes the difference. And what does he say in verses 15 to 17? I've just read them through briefly, but he he says that His death makes a difference. And let me just remind you, Bill had highlighted Robert speaking on the death of Christ. Never forget this. Jesus took death. Death didn't take him. 
And Jesus tasted death, the bitterness of death, and he trampled death. And he was the one person, the one person in history over whom death had no hold. Something he told Pilate at his trial. Powerful. And his death was supremely sacrificial and a complete satisfaction of the justice of God. People often misunderstand this. And his resurrection makes a difference. The heartbeat of the early Christian message and the early Christian believers was all to do with the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, And on one occasion, near the end of what we read of him in the Bible, Paul was, he wasn't on trial, it was a hearing before Agrippa, who was a great-grandson of Herod the Great, and the governor Festus, the Roman governor, and he was before them all in, in this great company. And uh, it's a marvelous passage uh, that I've often thought on and read on. But Paul says to the leading officials, really, if you like, the top people of his day, those who were the power merchants, and he looks them calmly in the eyes, being accused of being insane when it was patently obvious that he was the most sane man in the room. And he said, why should it be thought incredible that God should raise the dead? It's a great question. It's a timeless question. And he did, and he stood there, and he raised the question. He wrote to the Romans, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And the resurrected Jesus is the returning Jesus. The New Testament emphasizes this because Jesus stressed it himself. And this very public arrival of the Lord Jesus, as in this passage, will bring life to those who die in Christ, and they shall be raised. Now, um, I, I just need to say a few other things because those who are alive at the coming will certainly not have priority over them, but they can have certainty now. Now that's the category we now fall into because we are waiting for that day. And there will be a reunion that lasts forever. Now, there's been a debate amongst Christians for centuries about the timing and the order of the second coming of Jesus. And that's partly because there's a lot of passages to be balanced and handled and thought about. And sometimes people come to different conclusions. And eventually it will be unraveled and we'll know the exact details. But there's been no debate, no uncertainty about the centrality, the reality, the actuality, the prospect of his coming, none whatsoever. So again, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, here tonight, I've I've, I've highlighted differences there. There was, uh, grief is different. Death is different. Jesus makes the difference. And here tonight, there may be different reactions to those differences. A company of this size, that's inevitable. And for those who see and accept the differences, well, there is relief and and comfort and hope and a sharing of the same hope that Robert had that Paul speaks of here. 
And for those who would love to have that hope, but for some reason yet can't quite get there, this is a time for serious thinking, pondering the question, could this hope ever be mine? Why not? It's 50 years this year since I became a Christian. 50 years. And it was, uh, so it's 50 years since I first went to City Church. And then, of course, I came here, I think, in 74. So that's coming up 50 years as well. And I want to be upfront about that, that there's no reason at all why everyone in this room can't have that same hope. No reason at all. It's not unusual for a humanist funeral to begin like this. We believe that this life is all there is. I've been and I've heard. Fair enough, free speech, say what you think, state your opinions. But we'll state ours, founded on scripture. And there's a Nigerian writer who wrote something which really hit me, he said, He said this, the conflict between humanists and religionists has always been one between the torch of enlightenment and the chains of enslavement. Do Paul's words read like the chains of enslavement? Well, I invite you to think about that. And if you feel indifferent to the differences or skeptical to the spiritual aspects of these things, just ponder, just consider. That's all I ask. Consider them. Why should it be thought incredible that God should raise the dead? Now, we don't merely look at the outward, the visible, but the inward and the invisible. And to see that is ultimately and necessarily an exercise of trusting faith. I mean, you can battle to and forth endlessly intellectually but it is ultimately an exercise of faith. It is not irrational, but it takes us beyond the bounds of our reason, beyond the limitations of our reason. There's one thing I can say to you absolutely because I've read Paul's words for 50 years and more. He was not gullible. Just let me insert one more little Robert story. And it illustrates the hope. I had another car, a Renault 12. Now, Robert liked Renaults. He talked about the Renault ride, the lovely suspension. Uh, And it's true. Now, my Renault was a little bit dated and it was expensive. It cost me 120 pounds. And I remember once when it, when it was on the rack for fixing, again preparing for the MOT, there were two headlights and they had two brass screws in which were adjustable screws for getting the correct angle of the headlights. And I always remember this because they were rusted to nothing. I mean, when I bought that car, I came down Gelden Road, the clutch was slipping before I got home. I just picked it up. So, you know, it was a monument for Robert, was that car, I'll tell you. Uh, I had several bad cars in those days. That's the way it used to be. Cars used to be like that. And um, anyway, he drilled out the rusted screw. And he went into a little workshop next to the garage. And he fashioned two brand new brass 
immaculate adjustable screws and we popped them in the headlights and it was ready for the MOT. It was great. And I was, I was blown away by that because it was just an instant bit of engineering. The master craftsman, Jesus, our God, can take an aging, sick, and weary body and craft a new one. That is stupendous. And the confident expectation of verse 13, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind and have no hope. That confident expectation rests on the confession of faith. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. That confession of faith is the basis for the confident expectation. And we all know, we've heard it time and again this evening, such confidence, such confession was Robert's. Well, if you share that hope, and I know many do here, again, verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And if you don't, you don't yet share that, why not now? Why not now? Now, we're going to listen to Handel's majestic music written for part of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Now, years, years ago, Graham and I queued at the Huddersfield Town Hall in the cold, at, beginning at 4 a.m., and we weren't even going to the Messiah. It was to get tickets for Robert. And he was very grateful. And I'm sure he was quite, very warm in his bed as we queued up. Uh, but but, but it, was, it was something. Now, this, this classic, and I, I want to add a bit of context to this because we're going to listen to it, and it's substantial. But the chapter is a classic, 1 Corinthians 15 is a classic defense of the resurrection. One of the most powerful and soaring passages in the whole Bible. And that's saying something. Paul sets out the historicity of the resurrection. He spells out the consequences of discarding that conviction. He answers some of the questions and the objections. It's 58 verses. It's a long chapter. And he soars with meaning and application in everything he says. And Paul was intellectually brilliant. He was a writer. He was a pastor. He was a missionary. He was an evangelist. And he lived his life and let it down according to this hope. This wasn't armchair stuff, hardly. And here's the relevant part, and I'm going to read it, and then we'll hear the music. Let me just read this through, and then I want to add one final comment. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. 
For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of us can say thank you for Robert. Peter describes it, Peter the Apostle describes it as a living hope through the resurrection. Would that we could all, each and every one of us say, thank you for him who was Robert's hope and who is our only hope. Let's listen to the music. I tell you a mystery We shall not all sleep But we shall all be changed In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye At the last trumpet
family have asked me to mention that after the service in a few moments, tea, coffee and cakes will be served at the back of the auditorium and everyone's welcome to stay behind and chat for a while before heading home. You may also like to know that an audio recording of the service may be accessed on the front page of the City Evangelical Church website or through uh, sermons.ceclead.co.uk. So please uh, inform any friends you know who might have wanted to be here tonight but were unable to make it along. Uh, there are two offertory boxes near the doors at the back and donations given today will be divided between City Evangelical Church and the Stanley Grange Community Association which is an assisted living facility for adults with learning disabilities. So please do use the boxes provided um, by the door. We'll just close with a word of prayer. Let's pray. The Apostle Paul wrote, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that this evening for the life of Robert Pattinson. And we thank you for the assurance that Robert has been given the victory over sin and death through his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We do pray that Betty, Heather, Mark and the rest of the family may be blessed as they cherish happy memories of Robert and that they may know the comfort that only you can give as they come to terms with their loss while remembering that Robert himself is with Christ, which is far better. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all this night and forevermore. Amen. Amen.